uh, back home, we like to add, when somebody says, and all God's people said, amen, we like to add, and some said, hallelujah. So um, there we are. Well, I think you, those of you who were here last year, I, I hope will remember me. Um, I shared with Larry Price here at the conference last year, and uh, it's a pleasure and a joy for me to be back with you. And uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm also especially pleased to be able to share this conference weekend with our, uh, my good friend, our brother Brian Gooding, uh, Brian Gunning. He <laughs> can't be all that good if I can't remember his name. But um, we have known each other for quite a number of years, and uh, it's a real joy to spend the weekend with him and with you. Now, would you like to turn, please, in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we will commence to read from verse number one. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you, for I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And I'm sure God will add a blessing to the public reading of his own word here this evening. Paul's epistle to the Romans has been described as his masterpiece. Of course, Paul has contributed very much 
to the New Testament canon of Scripture. You will recall that in the New Testament there are 27 books, and 13 of those books have been written by the Apostle Paul. Therefore, he is a very big contributor to the New Testament that we have in our hands this evening. However, some of his letters are comparatively short, and while he has written almost 50% of the books in the New Testament, probably his contribution taken as a whole is somewhere between a quarter and a third of the New Testament scriptures. So Paul was a prolific writer, writing for different reasons, to different peoples, for different purposes, always in order to encourage and to instruct and to comfort, so that having read his letters, the people of God, not only at that time, but unknown to him, down through the years, in fact for 2,000 years, might benefit from his exercise and his skill in writing, as it were, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And so it is always a privilege to think of Paul and to think of what it is that he has written, and that's what I hope to do with you and to share with you uh, during this conference um, from these verses that we have read in Romans. Romans is a basic and foundational uh, epistle. It speaks of many great things, and we'll come to see some of those things. It speaks about justification by faith. It speaks about the blood of Christ. It speaks about the righteousness of God. It speaks about the wrath of God, and many, many other doctrines outlined and detailed for us here in the epistle to the Romans written by Paul. I would imagine that most of you have read through the epistle to the Romans. And if you haven't, I suggest that it might be a jolly good idea for you to do so. If you have done so, I suggest that you read it again. I came across this introduction and comment on Romans written by Tyndale. And this is what he said. He's using, of course, the language of his day. It's a bit old-fashioned English. He said, in connection with this epistle to the Romans, I think it is meet that every Christian man not only know it by rote, but also exercise himself therein evermore continually. No man can read it too often or study it too well, for the more it is studied, the easier it becomes. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more it is searched, more precious things are found in it, so that great treasure of spiritual things lieth hidden therein. Wherefore, let every man, without exception, exercise himself therein diligently, and record it night and day continually, until he be fully acquainted with it. I wouldn't like to claim in any way that I am fully acquainted with the epistle to the Romans. I have no doubt that Tyndale was, but I, the acquaintance that I do have with it, I have enjoyed, and I'm sure you have too. And if you have not yet acquainted yourself with the epistle to the Romans, then I hope that as a result of the ministry over this weekend, that you will gain a liking for it and a hunger for it,
and you will find that you will become established in your faith and in your knowledge of God and of the message of the gospel ever more so the more you acquaint yourself with it. Of course, in looking at the beginning of any particular letter, it is always good to think just for a moment or two about who wrote it and when they wrote it and why they wrote it and where they were when they wrote it and things like that. So I will just mention these things very quickly. Amongst commentators and critics, there seems to be no doubt at all that the letter was written by the Apostle Paul. And uh, there is some little query about chapter 16, which I will speak of in a moment or two. The date of writing it is thought to be in A.D. 58. Where was he when he wrote it? He was in Corinth. He was on his second visit to Greece as part of his third missionary trip. And, of course, he, write, he writes to the Romans from there. Who does he address it to? He addresses it in a rather strange way, and we'll come back to this in a moment or two. He addresses it not to the church that is at Rome, but to all that be at Rome, and more of that in a moment or two. And what is it about? Well, I've already told you it is about the gospel. And furthermore, what was his purpose in writing it? And I hope to detail that in a little bit more in a moment or two. So, Paul is the writer. He wrote it in A.D. 58 while he was in Corinth, before he went to Jerusalem. He addressed it to all that be in Rome, and it is about the message of the gospel. Of course, Paul, from A.D. 48 to A.D. 58, had spent most of his time uh, in the countries surrounding the Aegean Sea. He administered there in Greece and in other places like Turkey and so on, as we call Turkey today, Asia Minor then, with uh, unusual success. Indeed, we might say incredible success. In that decade, he founded many churches. He saw many people saved. And of course, it must have been a delight for him to see his message of the gospel being so widely accepted by both Jews and Gentiles, and also for those that were with them. Those must have been heady days. And sometimes you and I think to ourselves, it must have been wonderful to be alive at that time when so much was happening and so much was being done by the Lord. I used to think that it might be a good thing for me when I get to heaven to say to some of the folks alive in heaven from those days, it must have been wonderful to, be, to have been there, until I thought about this. While it is true that in the West today, the message of the gospel, whether it be here in the United States of America, or back home in dear old England, or in Western Europe, there seems to be very little response to the message of the gospel. It is certainly not the fault of the gospel, but there seems to be little response to the gospel. And yet, while that is so, there is absolutely no need for us to become discouraged in the slightest, because while things seem to be limited here, in other parts of the world, they are quite unlimited. If you think of China, and you think of India, and you think of other places, 
The message of the gospel is on the loose. It is running free. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are coming to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I now imagine, if I find or when I find myself in glory, that some folk from this day, the day of, of the Apostle Paul, they might come and say to me, now, Roy Hill, when did you live? And I'll say, well, I lived in part of the 20th century and the 21st century. And they are likely to say, wow, did you? Really? Were you alive when all those thousands and millions of people were being saved in the world? Did you see that? It must have been wonderful. How we wish we could have been there. I tell you, brethren and sisters, let us not ever be discouraged by the fact that for the moment at least, in the West, there's not much happening as far as the gospel is concerned. Because in the East and in the South, the gospel is running freely. And countless numbers are being brought to Christ. So Paul had something, a taste of this, a foretaste of greater things to come while he was preaching the gospel around the countries of the Aegean Sea. Great success. Of course, there is not, he spent 10 years doing that, and uh, he then decided that it was high time for him to do something else. But success in the preaching of the gospel even on virgin territory, does not always come so easily as it did to Paul. We know what Paul suffered. We know what he endured. But he was buoyed up by this fact that there were results for his preaching. A few months ago, well, at the end of last year, I was uh, spending a week in the Faroe Islands. Now, I don't know... Is there anybody here who has heard of the Faroe Islands? You have. Is there anybody here who knows where the Faroe Islands are? Oh, one or two. You must have been looking at Google or something. Is there anybody who has ever been to the Faroe Islands here? Right. In 1857, a man called W.G. Sloan from Scotland took the message of the gospel to the Faroe Islands. These are located north of Orkney and Shetland, which in turn are located off the north coast of Scotland. It is halfway between Denmark and Iceland, and it is really a Danish uh, colony with its own language, Faroese. Mr. Sloan preached the gospel for something like 13 years, and not a single soul was saved. But he kept at it. He kept at it. By about 1910, there was an assembly in the capital, Torshavn, with about 30 people there. Now, when I was there in the Faroe Islands at the end of last year, let me tell you this, that out of a population of 50,000 people on about 13 or more islands, there are now 5,000 people in assembly fellowship. There are 32 assemblies. The largest has about 600 in fellowship, and the smallest would have about 20 in fellowship. They have commended to the foreign field 20 missionaries. 
They have eight home workers. At their conference in November each year, they have an attendance of more than 1,500. The gospel suddenly went on the loose. Should you and I, therefore, not pray our God, who is the same, that the same gospel message preached in his name might run loose again here in California, back home in England and in Canada, to the glory of God and to the salvation of many. Brethren and sisters, today I say to you that our God is able. We pray that he might be willing and that through his Holy Spirit there might be many who would come to Christ in our day and generation. Let us pray for revival, for revival is possible, and you and I might have the great privilege and honor of being somewhat involved in it as well. And so Paul now, having spent 10 years or more with huge success, preaching the gospel message, founding assemblies in those countries around the Aegean Sea, now decides that it's time for him to do something different. You and I are likely to walk away from a job when we're failing at it. Paul was walking away from it when he had never been more successful. Where did he want to go? What was in his vision? He wanted to go to Spain, probably as far as he was concerned, the most Western country that he was aware of at that time. He wanted to take the gospel message to Spain. He had a vision for Spain. And he decided that a good jumping-off place for Spain was Rome. And therefore, he wanted to go to Rome. A, because he had never been there before. B, to have fellowship with the saints. And C, to have their commendation to take the gospel to places that had never heard it before. And so, with this in view, he writes to the church at Rome. It would be good for us to ask, where did the church at Rome come from? How was it founded? Well, it was certainly not founded by Paul. Neither was it founded, as far as we are aware, by any other of the apostles. Neither was it founded, as far as we know, by, uh, by any record in the Acts of the Apostles. So, where did it come from? How come that there was a flourishing assembly in Rome at the time Paul wrote? Well, different ideas have been suggested in connection with it. Let me mention a couple to you. You will recall that on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, there were there some who are described as strangers of Rome. So when Peter preached in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, there were people there from Rome. Some of them heard. Some of them, I believe, became converts. And it is possible that they took the basic message of the gospel back to Rome. As a result of which, an assembly was founded, and others, the gospel preached, and others were saved. What sort of message did they hear while they were in Jerusalem? Let me 
I was simply going to refer to it, but when I read it again this afternoon, I just thought I must read this out because this is the gospel. What is it? Peter says this, ye men of Israel, and of course the other strangers as well, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up and loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Such was the message of the gospel that filtered back to Rome. The basic facts of the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into glory. On that day, 5,000 souls were saved, and on the basis of that message, many thousands have come to Christ since. The message is still the same. It is the power of God, says Paul, unto salvation. So it might be the people from Rome were the only Europeans listed in the account of those who attended there on the day of Pentecost. And as a result of that, of course, and as a result of hearing that message so beautifully and plainly and compellingly preached by the Apostle Peter, the gospel was on its way to Rome as those pilgrims returned to their home country. Or, if that was not how it got there, it may have gotten there by another way. You remember that in Acts chapter 10, some years after Acts chapter 2, that the Apostle Paul visited a centurion called Cornelius of the Italian band. Cornelius was a centurion, and he heard the gospel from the lips of the Apostle Peter, and he believed it. Now, he was not the only centurion who heard the message of the gospel. In fact, in the, Acts, in the Gospels and in the Acts, there are seven centurions who are mentioned, in fact, perhaps even eight. There is the one, do you remember, whose servant, wanted, whose servant needed healing, and he came to Jesus to ask him to heal him. There was the centurion at the cross who cried out, surely this was a righteous man. There was our friend Cornelius himself. There was the centurion, if you like, in Acts chapter 22, who, when Paul was about to be beaten, said to his chief captain, take heed what thou doest, this man is a Roman. In Acts 23, there were two centurions who escorted Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea by night. In Acts 23 again, there was a centurion directed to guard Paul. And in Acts 27, there was a centurion made responsible for the delivery of Paul 
to Rome. The Bible seems always to speak well of Roman centurions. And these centurions, who must have from Paul heard the gospel, some of whom even had met Jesus himself, these centurions would not spend all their lives in Israel. But they too, sooner or later, will go back home to Rome. And maybe they took the message of the gospel back home to their own fellow men as a result of that or the other or both a church was founded in Rome but it is also interesting to note that generally speaking when Paul is uh, writing to um, a church um, he, he does so and addresses it as a church but Rome was a big city and I imagine that in the city of Rome, there was more than one church. They didn't, of course, have halls and so on like what we have today. They very often met in someone's house. And it's interesting, I want to suggest to you that as far as I can see, I believe there were in Rome something like five different churches. How do I come to that conclusion and why do I say it? with such confidence. When you go to Romans chapter 16, and you might like to turn to that just now if you're interested in what I'm saying to you here, you will see there that as the uh, Apostle Paul is um, writing to them, he's saying this to them. Chapter 16, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Down to verse 5. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house, number one. Number two, verse 10. Salute Apelles, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of Aristobulus' household, number two. Number three, salute Herodian, my kinsman. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Number four, salute those unpronounceable names uh, in verse 14 and read from and Hermes and the brethren which are with them. Number four. Number five, the second part of the verse, and Olympus and all the saints which are with them. So it seems to me evident that in Rome there was not one church but there were, let me put it this way, so as not to be too dogmatic, at least five churches. I think it was five, and there, here they are outlined. It's interesting what Paul says just in passing about these churches. In num number one, he describes as a church, which is in their house. Number two, he describes the church as a household. Number three, he describes the church as being in the Lord. Number four, he describes the church as consisting of brethren. And number five, he describes the church as being the saints. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I nearly wept when I saw that. How here he describes these churches in Rome. And yet each of them, of course, is, was different. 
and he describes them differently. And uh, it's lovely to see that. So he doesn't write to the church which is at Rome, but in verse 1 he says, to all that be at Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Furthermore, there are some, as I say, big themes, big issues, big words in the epistle to the Romans, like righteousness, etc., etc. But I want you to see also that as far as um, these churches were concerned, um, they consisted, I believe, of Jews and Gentiles. If the gospel were taken to Rome by those on the, from the day of Pentecost, it is likely that the first converts there were Jews. If it was taken first by Cornelius and others, other centurions, it was likely that the church consisted mainly of Gentiles. But I think it consisted of Jews and Gentiles, which makes me think that perhaps both of those um, sources for that church, or those churches, were correct. From time to time over the years, the church, I'm sorry, the Jews fell foul of the emperor and the authorities. And often they were persecuted and often they had to flee as refugees abroad, certainly out of Rome, very often out of Italy. And from time to time, when the emperor changed, or when the emperor changed his mind, Jews were welcomed back again. And so the Jews were kind of shuttling to and from Rome, because Rome was a great city to live in in those days. A city of culture, a city of commerce, a city, as it were, where Christianity was growing. And um, they all wanted to go back to Rome. And so they did. But... I think the Jews found when they left, they were in the majority in the assemblies. And when they came back, they were in the minority. How come? Because in their absence, the gospel had spread. More Gentiles had come to Christ. And they found things different now. You know what it's like if you go away from this assembly or your assembly and you spend two or three or four or ten years somewhere else, and then you come back here, you think, well, goodness me, hasn't Claremont changed? This is not the assembly that we knew before. Things are different here. Not sure if we like it so much now. And I think that between the Jews and the Gentiles and the churches at Rome, there grew up tension and feelings. And Paul writes, one of the reasons for writing is to as it were, to limit that tension. See how he starts off? To all that be in Rome. I pray for you all. And he uses that expression, that word, quite a few times in this opening chapter. And so the assemblies, therefore, I believe, consisted of Jews and Gentiles. And, of course, there were those who were, there was tension amongst them. It consisted of Jews and Gentiles. It consisted of rich and poor. It consisted of the hoi polloi and the aristocracy. It consisted of the real wealthy and the those in absolute poverty. Free men and slaves, all there in fellowship together in these assemblies. It was only the Spirit of God that could keep them together in unity. 
And so it is that um, Paul wrote to them like this. He was explaining to them that he really wanted to come and see them. And uh, he made a prayer that was a very dangerous prayer. Apparently he had said to God, I want to get to Rome by any means. And he got to Rome by means that he had never anticipated. Rather than arriving on the shores of Italy free to preach the message of the gospel to all and sundry, he arrived there in chains, a prisoner of the empire that he wanted to set free. And yet God used him in a beautiful way there in Rome. He was arrested in Jerusalem. He appealed to Caesar. He was sent to Rome. He was shipwrecked on the journey. He wintered, overwintered in Malta. He reached Rome in about AD 60. Christians walked 30 to 40 miles to meet him, although he was a prisoner of the state. He was kept for two years in his own house, it's described as, where he received visitors and preached the gospel to them. Not what he had anticipated at all. So let me say again, why was he writing? He was writing, number one, to promote unity. Number two, he was writing to counter critics. You see, I think there were some who said, Paul is allegedly and claims to be the apostle to the Gentiles. How come we've never seen him? After all, Rome is the heart of Gentile power. He's never been here. Don't even know if he wants to come. Maybe he's afraid to come. How is it that the apostle to the Gentiles has never come to the biggest Gentile city on earth and come to preach here? So they were critical and suspicious. Furthermore, he wrote to allay those fears. He also wrote to introduce himself and the gospel that he preached. He wrote to encourage his friends who were in these assemblies in Rome. He names about 24 of them by name. He'd never been to Rome, but he knew quite a number of people in the assemblies there. And he wrote to preserve the basics of the message of the gospel. And I believe that this epistle to the Romans was not written wholly for the Romans. Because chapter 16, when you come to it, is all about Rome. But if you look at it, and look at it when you go home, if chapter 16 wasn't there, the end of chapter 15 brings a perfect ending to the epistle. It is possible that chapters 1 to 15 were later sent to other churches without chapter 16, which was all about Rome. So this letter became foundational material for all the assemblies and was sent to them. The only other place, as far as I can determine, that Paul wrote to that he had never visited was Colossae and Colossians. And similarly, in the last chapter of Colossians, there's a whole list of names of people that he knew there, although he had not been there. 
So perhaps chapter 16 is for the Romans only, and all the other chapters were for um, various other assemblies. So was his um, message to the Romans successful? Did it achieve anything? What was the outcome? Well, he certainly got there. That was one of the outcomes. He was certainly welcomed there, in spite of what they might have said about him previously. That was one of the outcomes. But another man wrote an uninspired letter to the churches at Rome in AD 115, named Ignatius. And as he wrote to Rome in AD 115, he described the church or the churches there as, and listen to this, and I think this reflects the results of the epistle to the Romans in the hearts of the Roman church and Paul's subsequent visit. Ignatius described them in AD 115, 50 years later, as being people in assembly fellowship there who are worthy of God, he said. That beautiful, worthy of God. Worthy of honor, worthy of congratulation, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy in purity, preeminent in love, walking in Christ, and bearing the Father's name. I say to you this, that this epistle to the Romans changed the lives of the Roman church. I say to you also that this epistle to the Romans changed the lives of Christians throughout Europe and Asia. I say to you that this epistle to the Romans could change your life too, and it could change mine. And as God willing, in our addresses tomorrow, and maybe also on Sunday afternoon or on Sunday morning, we shall look at what Paul actually said that was so effective in the hearts and lives of those to whom he wrote. May God bless his word and thank you for listening to this introduction to this amazing epistle.